We are reading in, in the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 2. And let me, let me give a refresher on what the book of Hebrews is. The book of Hebrews is written to believers in Christ. Some books of the New Testament are written to unbelievers. Some books are written to believers. This book is written to believers. The believers live in the Judean area, the area around Jerusalem, but not in Jerusalem. They are beginning to undergo persecution. It's not severe persecution. They haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, but they're undergoing persecution. It's more persecution than we normally go through. For us, persecution is, I wore a Christian t-shirt, somebody got offended, I've been persecuted. That's the level of our persecution. They're undergoing much more than that. But not yet to the point of martyrdom. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says in the book of Hebrews, none of you have yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And because of the persecution, they are thinking about going back into Judaism to be saved from that persecution. But what Paul is warning them about is, if you do go back into, into, into Judaism under the law, you will die physically. He is speaking about a physical death. The physical death that they will die is the 70 A.D. judgment, which is about to come. They didn't know the exact date, but it was the 70 A.D. judgment. Remember, this book was written between 66 and 68 A.D. So just, just a couple years before the 70 A.D. judgment that was going to hit Jerusalem, if they go back under Ju Judaism, they're going to end up back in Jerusalem, and they're going to die in that judgment. And what he's warning them about is, be careful of this. Now... What you see in the book of Hebrews is you see him doing exactly what God does and what the scriptures do over and over again. They encourage us, and then it warns us. It encourages us, and then it warns us. And this is exactly what life is about. If you think of a, what a parent deals with with their children, it is encouragement and telling their children they love them and then warning them. If you go out into the road, you will die. You don't step out into that road and then you encourage them and you love them. There's just times of discipline, times of warning and times of encouragement. And we will see this, the, the, this cyclical pattern throughout this book. So Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll pick it, off, pick it up where, where, where we left off last time. So let's look at, at verse 10 again. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him... For whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So remember, as we had talked about the last time, for it is fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Why does Jesus have to suffer? Why did he have to suffer? It says right here, for it was fitting. That is it. That is all the explanation he is giving us. And sometimes in our lives, things come upon us and we absolutely do not understand why this is coming upon me. Other than the fact that it was fitting. God, in His understanding, reveals to us all that we need to know. Because it is difficult for us to understand the complexity of what this means, this suffering means in my life, 
in terms of eternity. Very difficult to understand. When I speak to people about my science, my chemistry, I'm cognizant of who I'm speaking to. When I'm speaking to 12-year-olds about my chemistry, I speak in very general terms because they don't understand steric interactions between an sp3 carbon and a, and a pi system. They don't understand that. To speak about that, they'd be like, huh? This is what it is with God and us. He speaks to us at the level in which we can understand. And very often, he says, it was fitting. You're going to have to trust me. You're just going to have to trust me, just as he does in the book of Job. He never explains to Job why he went through this suffering. He just exposes himself to Job and says, I am who I am. And in that, Job was content. It was fitting for Jesus to suffer. And then he says in, in verse, verse uh, 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified... Verse 11 of Hebrews 2, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So again, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. This is huge. This is huge. I mean, you're very careful about who, who you will introduce as your brother or as your sister. You don't want to be associated with this person. Jesus initiates this and calls us his brethren. It's my brother. Jesus calls us his brethren. Jesus, it says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. When you have received him, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus welcomes us into his family. He is not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. So this is Jesus speaking as he's quoting in the Old Testament. I will proclaim your name, God the Father's name, to my brethren. I have come to proclaim my Father, God, to my brethren, Jesus says. Beautiful picture. Jesus came to proclaim the Father's name. Jesus said, I don't do anything on my own initiative. As I see him doing, I do. I only do what he wants me to do. I have proclaimed your name among my brethren, among my brothers. This is the way he introduces us to his father, my brethren. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus demonstrates for us worship. He demonstrates praise. He says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Look at what he calls down again. I and the children whom God has given me. This is how he introduces us as his children. This is huge. I don't introduce people as my children unless they're my children. Because I don't want to be responsible for them. If they're my child, I got to pay for them. I mean, I got four I already pay for, and it never stops. I mean, for those of you with little kids that you think someday it's going to end, it never ends. And then when you start holding back, I can tell you as a father, my wife comes to me and just takes it anyway from me and gives it to them. Amen. It happens, right? 
And, and they, they understand this and they appeal to her and she just takes it and gives it to them. You be very careful who you call your children. He says, he says, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. He calls us his children. Let's start reading in verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Have you ever seen a father of a child who's going through uh, chemotherapy, cancer treatment, and the child loses his hair, and the father, in solidarity with his child, shaves his head. Have you ever seen that happen? I've seen that happen. It's a beautiful picture. The father will shave his head in solidarity with his son. My son was just diagnosed with an illness where he's going to have to very carefully control his diet. In solidarity with my son, I will not eat anything that he can't eat when we're together. So, you know, if there's a big meal, I say, Ben, what are you eating? I won't eat anything that he can't eat. And it's my joy to do this in solidarity with my son. It's my joy. And I, and I tell him, we're in this together. In solidarity with my son. Look what it says in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? He says, because my children are bound to flesh and blood in solidarity to them. I take on flesh and blood. In solidarity with my children. Why did God become flesh? In solidarity with his children. That's why he did it. That is the picture that he gives us. Can you think of a better picture? A more compelling picture that God loves us. That God cares for us. In solidarity with his children. He takes on flesh and blood. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... Since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. That is why he took on flesh and blood in solidarity with us. He says if they are going to be bound by flesh and blood in solidarity, I will come in flesh and blood. I will subject myself to being born like they are born. To being helpless in the sense of having to have somebody take care of every need of, for me, like a little child, in solidarity with my children. My children have to suffer with temptation here on earth. I too will expose myself to the same te temptations and even greater. This is what a father does. This is what a parent does. When a parent sees their child suffering, they would give of themselves for their child if they could. If they see a child struggling with cancer, they will say, Lord, give me the cancer. Leave my child alone. Give it to me. They will gladly take upon themselves 
the suffering of their child. This is exactly the picture that Jesus demonstrates for us. He says, they have to go through temptation, I will go through temptation. What they they have to suffer, I will suffer more than they ever have to suffer. I will suffer. Because He bore the sins of the world upon Him. I don't think any of us have ever done that. More than any of us will ever suffer, He has suffered. I will do this in solidarity with my children. He has not left you alone in your sufferings. He has gone before you in your sufferings. Verse 14, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Why did he do this? In solidarity with his children. And what did he, through, what did he do? That through his death he rendered powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil. The devil has power over death of the unbeliever, but not of the believer. Once you come into Jesus Christ, the devil no longer has power over your life. You are transported into his kingdom as his child, and the devil no longer has say over your death. Never again, once you're in the kingdom of God. He would render powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He takes the normal fear of death and he changes it. He changes it. Because we know where we are going. He has not told us a lie. He has not deceived us. He has told us there is a better place for us. He has not told us a lie. You see a believer on their deathbed and... It's just an amazing how, how they so often will just say, I'm okay. I'm okay. I know where I am going. You want to learn a lot about God and people? Minister to somebody on their deathbed where they know where they are going. Just an amazing peace. He is rendered powerless, the devil, who inflicts people with the fear of death. He renders him powerless. This is what he did. This is God just pouring out, lavishing upon his children, calling us his children, and then lavishing upon us grace upon grace and gift upon gift. He says, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels. In verse 16, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of, to the descendant of Abraham. He does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. The whole context of this is what God is granting to his people through the life of Jesus Christ. Look at how personal he gets with these people. He is speaking to children of Abraham. He is speaking to Hebrew Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, Messianic Jews, those who believe in Messiah, who live around in Judea, around Jerusalem, but not in Jerusalem who are thinking about going back into Judaism to protect themselves, thinking that they can go back into Judaism, protect themselves from the persecution that is to come, and once the persecution subsides, to come back into Christ. And that's why he talks about, you can't have Christ re-crucified for you. You can't do it. You're going to lose your life in the process. But here he says to them, he doesn't even help angels. 
But what he does, he helps the descendant of Abraham. These were descendants of Abraham. This is whom he helps. It's as if he would come to you and identify you by your family and say, I come to help you. This is how personal he's getting with them. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Why did he have to be? Because he said in solidarity, I will be. When God said in solidarity, I will be, he had to be. It had to happen. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. That means to make sacrifice for the sins of his people. He had to become one of us, the scriptures say, because he said it would happen. It had to happen. And in this, he becomes a merciful and faithful high priest. So we can never go to God and say, God, you don't know what I'm going through. Uh, actually, I do. You don't know what it's like to, to see a, a, a child suffering. Um, actually, I do. Everything we go through, he himself has gone through. And so in that, he becomes a merciful and faithful high priest. You know, when students tell me in the lab, you know, it's so hard to do this, so hard to do that, I'm just thinking, it's not that hard. I've done it. I've been in the lab. I've done it. Exactly what you're being asked to do, I've done. And it gives me great comfort. But if I had never been in the lab, I'd never really know. I'd never really know. But you profess in the areas in, 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 in which in, in the areas of your expertise, so you've done it. You've been through it. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to give you know these oral exams and to take all these tests. You know what it's like. This is what he's done. He's been through it. That makes him a faithful and merciful high priest. Because he's been through it. If you haven't been through something, it's hard to be merciful with people to understand it, to understand what they're going through. So I, people bring to me problems, and I've never experienced that problem personally. I just have to commit them to God because I know Jesus has experienced this. Jesus has experienced this abuse. Jesus knows what it's like to be abused. If you have been abused, Jesus knows what it's like to be abused. Jesus knows what it's like and he extends to you his hand of grace. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He is able to come to your aid. So you see what he does. He lavishes upon us. You will not find a more beautiful picture of one who loves us, of the demonstration of a God who loves us. This picture is so profound. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has, has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence 
and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So in this passage, what we see is we see again the comparison here. Hebrews chapter 1, he, he showed us that Jesus is superior in is superior to angels in his deity. Jesus in his deity is superior to angels. Hebrews chapter 2, he showed us that Jesus in his humanity is superior to angels. And in Hebrews chapter 3, he's showing us that Jesus is superior to Moses. They had a great respect for angels. The author is showing Jesus is superior to the angels. They had a great respect for Moses, saying Jesus is superior to Moses. This is what he's showing us in Hebrews chapter 3. He starts out, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of, of a heavenly calling. This is how we know that this book was written to believers, not unbelievers. People get confused about this. They think that because of the things that are said, he must have been speaking to unbelievers. He was not. He was speaking to believers. Because he says, Therefore, holy brethren, holy brethren, this is the title for those who are in Christ. He makes them holy. And he calls them his brethren, meaning his brothers in Christ. The writer is saying this. Partakers of a heavenly calling. Again, identifying them as believers in Christ. Now they had not matured as they should. That's why he's later going to say, you should be eating meat. But you're still eating baby food. You're still having to, having to, to drink milk. So they had not matured in their faith. But they were very much in the faith. He was faithful and then he said, and consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Again, our confession. It's speaking of the believer. He's uniting them in this is their confession of faith. This title, apostle and high priest of our confession. This title is only used here throughout the entire New Testament to call Jesus an apostle and a high priest together like this. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in his house. He says, you know, Moses was faithful in serving God. Jesus was faithful. Jesus' faithfulness was greater even than the faithfulness of Moses. Then he goes down again in verse 5. He says, now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which were to be spoken later. Twice in this passage, he highlights the faithfulness of Moses. Twice in this passage, the faithfulness of Moses. Let's turn to Numbers, the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, and we're going to turn to chapter 12. So Numbers is back in the Old Testament. And like the third or fourth book of the Old Testament, you'll see the book of Numbers there. And this is, this is documenting an occurrence where God identifies Moses as faithful in all of my house. This is the occurrence that he identifies Moses so what Hebrews chapter 3 is doing is it's calling upon the faithfulness of Moses. Let's look at what God had said about the faithfulness of Moses. Hebrews chapter 12, reading from verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Okay, so Miriam and Aaron were Moses' older brother and sister. Miriam had a very high place in the Bible. In fact, it was Miriam who was watching Moses when he was put out as a little baby among the reeds in a little, in a little raft there. And then 
Pharaoh's daughter came and heard a baby crying, had him taken out of the reeds, and then raised this baby. And it was Miriam who ran up to her and said, hey, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women to, to nurse the baby? And she said, yeah, that'd be nice of you. She runs back and she gets her mother to nurse Moses. I mean, she's clever, clever young girl. She had a very high place. Aaron was his older brother. Aaron was the high priest at that time. They came against him. What was the occasion? Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They came against him because he married a Cushite woman. Cushite speaks of the Horn of Africa. She may well have been a black woman. Speaking of the Horn of Africa. So, so I've, I've read on this to, to, to answer this. She may have been black, certainly of the Afro-Asianic family. And it's hard, they say, to distinguish whether it was by language or by culture that she was, she was from this Horn of Africa. But there was something in her characteristic, and she may well have been black, certainly not of the Jewish race, because her father was a priest of Midian, she was different than the Jewish people, and they spoke against Moses because he had married outside the Jewish race. He had married a woman who didn't look quite like the Jewish women. You ever suffer from discrimination? Moses' wife did, and Moses did. And remember, Moses was in the wilderness. Moses had to run for his life at the age of 40. And he wasn't yet married. And he finds himself in the wilderness. And he marries this Cushite woman. And it says again, it underscores it, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. You can't try to explain this one away. Well, maybe marriage means befriended. It says, uh-uh, he married a Cushite woman. Makes it very clear. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? Does this not somehow diminish Moses' authority? Doesn't it somehow diminish his authority? Because he, uh, uh, um, he's spoken to us too. I mean, Moses, you know, what makes him in charge? He's married a Cushite woman. We don't feel this enough in our culture today. We really don't feel it enough. When I was a kid, an interracial marriage, especially between a white person and a black person, just, I mean, it, it was just amazing. The stuff that those people went through, kind of today, it, it, it's kind of accepted and we don't get, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. 50 years ago, it was a big deal. It was a very big deal. And you've got a Jewish culture too. And the Jews are very protective of maintaining their culture. So you got all of this around there. And this somehow was supposed to pull down Moses in their eyes. Has the Lord spoken through, has not the Lord spoken through us as well? I mean, come on, we're the older sister and older brother. And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Now think about this. It is believed that Moses wrote this. How can a man write? Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. 
Now, maybe it was a scribal insertion because there are scribal insertions in the scriptures and they can tell by the way it's written. But think about this. God tells Moses to write this and it's like, Lord, how can I do this? I mean, it's not going to look good if I'm writing it myself. How about we write, the Lord said that Moses... That, that, that Moses is more humble than any man on earth. Why don't we just do it that way, Lord? No. The Lord said, just write. I want you to write. Now, Mo, the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Do you see how hard it is sometimes to walk with the Lord? The things that he asks us to do. You think that was easy? You think that was easy for him to write? Couldn't be easy. He asks us to do things that aren't easy all the time. He asks us to do things that aren't comfortable. He asks us to do things that are embarrassing. It says in, 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 in verse uh, 2, at the end of verse 2, and the Lord heard it. Now you have this little parenthetical thing to define how humble Moses was. And immediately it says, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. Uh Uh-oh. Now who knows what they thought, but immediately it says, "Suddenly, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. As soon as he heard it, God is it. The Lord heard it immediately. You say this about my servant Moses? You three, come forward. Maybe they thought they're now going to be exalted like Moses had been. He says, you two, come forward. Moses just did. You two, come forward. He said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak, mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, my, my servant against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. O do not let her be like a dead one whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord saying, O God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, Would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move until Miriam was received again. So, it says says in, in, in in verse seven, Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. He pegs him as being a faithful man. And he says, were you not afraid to speak against him like this? When I first read this verse, I shuddered to speak against leadership. I was just afraid. 
I won't say a word negative about my pastor. I won't speak against the leadership of my church. I hear people say things. I will not. I will not speak against leadership. I was once in a gathering of some people and I said some things that were not flattering about the president of the university. And to this day, I regret it. Because that's leadership over me. Now, I have spoken to leadership when I've disagreed with them. I, I'll make an appointment and talk with them. And a lot of times they, they, they explain to me why it's the situation. As soon as they explain to me the situation, I'm like, okay, I understand. But I'm not going to speak against them. I will not speak against leadership. Suddenly God hears when you speak against leadership. Think what you might. But when you speak it forth, it's different. Suddenly God will hear. And if that leadership has been faithful, he calls down faithfulness. He says, you should have seen his faithfulness. His faithfulness alone is something that you shall recognize. God recognizes faithfulness. When you are faithful, God recognizes it. Let's close with this portion in Luke chapter 16. The gospel according to Luke chapter 16, reading from verse 10. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little things is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You want to exceed? Be faithful. He's talking about money. Be faithful with your money. You say, well, I really don't make much. What do you have? You have $10, you give away $1. You be gracious with what you have. You be gracious with what you have. He says, if you can't be faithful with the little things that you have, you're not going to be given much. He calls us to faithfulness. When, when you tell somebody, you know, I'll be there on such and such a day and I'll take care of it for you. That means something. Do you know who's watching? God is watching. God is watching and he sees people who are faithful and he brings them on up and he protects them. Faithfulness is acknowledged. Faithfulness, it matters. It is good to be committed to do something. I don't want to commit to that. Well, you just lost a tremendous blessing. Blessing comes in faithfulness. Yeah, when you're committed to that, you're bound by it. That means if you can't do it, you're making phone calls to find somebody to substitute for you. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness. He says if you can't be faithful in the little things, you're not going to be given much. You want to be brought up in the world? You want to be the leadership? You be faithful with the little things. As you're faithful with the little things, the little things might be setting up chairs regularly. Always doing that. This is what I tell people. I say, you watch the people who serve. You want to find a spouse? Watch somebody who's serving. That is going to be a selfless person. And it is much better to be married to a person who's selfless than selfish. You watch the people who serve. And those are the ones that are going to make a good spouse. The people who serve. If they serve. Do they dedicate each week to preparing to prepare to teach a Bible study? Are they dedicating things or just, well, I'll show up. Aren't you glad I'm here? It's Sunday. Be glad I'm here. No, that has nothing to do with it. It is being faithful. Faithful in the task. God speaks of faithfulness. That's what he's calling in Hebrews. He says, Moses was faithful. Twice in that 
One paragraph, he says, Moses was faithful, he was faithful in my house. Then he says, my son is faithful. The son of God is faithful. Faithfulness he calls us to. Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the demonstration that Jesus calls us his brethren and his children and in solidarity with us. He has taken upon himself flesh and blood because we bear flesh and blood. And he has taken temptation and he has been confronted by the devil. Lord, I pray that you would drive this picture home to us. The solidarity that Jesus has taken toward us being bound by flesh and blood, the love that he has demonstrated. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you went through on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that those here who do not know you, that they would see this picture of the goodness of God and be drawn to him. You have given us everything in demonstrating the life of your son in flesh and blood being given for us. And Father, I pray that you would take these young people and that you would make them faithful. Father, make them faithful, I pray, in the tasks that you have called them to. Make them faithful, I pray. And through that, then that they would be given more. Father, make them faithful. The grace of God surround these young people, I pray. Lord, draw them to yourself. And Father, for those that do not know you, I pray that this day they would say this very prayer with me. Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for rising from the dead for me. And Lord, draw them into your kingdom this day, I pray for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.